in the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, in chapter 13. Just to give us the context, I'll begin in verse 1, and we'll be looking particularly at verses 6 and 7. But beginning at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. What an amazing demonstration of your love that we who were once your enemies, you would call us to be your children, seated with you around your table one day, even to rule the nations. And to recognize that the cost of that redemption was the blood of a sinless man. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever should believe in Him might be saved and have eternal life. And for us, we have believed. And Lord, I pray that the expression of that belief, the expression of that faith, would become manifest particularly in manifesting that same sort of love towards one another and even to the lost world around us. Make us a loving people. And I pray that as we look at your word today, that that's exactly what would happen. That this would be a catalyst and a fuel in our heart. God, that would burn with a sincere and passionate love for one another. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So if God were to audibly speak to you right now and give you the option of receiving immediate access into heaven or to continue on with your life, what would you say? And think about it. If you could have immediate access into heaven, or to have you stay, what would you choose? And why? That's really the most important thing, is why? And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, 
necessarily to staying or going. But what would you say? See, regardless of what you choose, such a choice would tell you a great deal about what you love. If your desire is to depart to be with Christ, that's what you love. But if you would want to go to heaven in order to avoid further pain in this life, then relief is what you love. If you desire to remain in order to accomplish something for yourself or to experience some additional pleasure maybe that you haven't experienced before, that's what you love. If you desire to remain to see the church continue to grow and be built up to be what God's called it to be, this shows you also what you love. And I bring all this up because this is the very tension that Paul felt um, as he writes the letter to the Philippians. Familiar passage. He says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. This tells us so much about the love that existed in Paul's heart. He loved Christ. His great desire was to depart and be with Christ. He wanted to be with his Lord. And yet, he loved Christ's church as well. And in fact, he says, because I know the church still needs to grow, I know he wants me to be here. He wants me to remain, to love other Christians. And he truly loved Christ. And therefore, he loved also what Christ loved. You see the connection? His love for Christ was expressed in his love for Christ's bride. Another way you could say this is that his worship expressed itself in fellowship. And you recognize the connection between those two words. Worship comes from the old English words, two words, worth and Skype or worth and ship, which means to declare the worth of something. And fellowship comes from uh, same t- uh, it's one of those same words, fellow and Skype, fellowship. And that means to um, declare the worth and value of something in agreement with one's fellows. So worship is to declare the worth and value of something, and fellowship is together with one's fellows to declare the worth of that thing and to pursue it together. So our worship should be expressed in fellowship. Fellowship is the horizontal expression of worship. And we worship that which we find our joy in. If you want to know what somebody worships, what is it that they talk about? What is it that brings them joy? What is it that lights up their countenance, that gives them excitement? That they want to talk about. Where, where is their heart? That's where their joy is. 
Paul worshipped and found joy in Christ, and therefore he wanted the Philippians to continue, and he wanted to see them particularly continue in their progress and joy in the faith. Because his joy was with Christ, he wanted the Philippians to also continue in their progress and their joy. He wanted to see their joy become full. He wanted them to experience the same joy in Christ that he experienced. So we worship what we rejoice in. And we want others to rejoice in what we find joyful. So last week, bringing this back to 1 Corinthians, last week we looked at eight of the depictions of love. And this week we'll look at the last six. And the first two which deal, the first two we'll look look on, um, deal with this issue of rejoicing. What love does not rejoice in and in what does rejoice in. So first of all, he states it in the negative. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This is the last of the things Paul mentions that love does not do. Uh, The Greek word uh, wrongdoing is the negative word word that's usually translated righteousness. Ad dikea. The A negates dikea, which is righteousness. Paul uses the word in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So unrighteousness is that which is not righteous. So Paul is saying love would never rejoice in something that is not right, that is not just. So really, this refers to anything that the Lord is not pleased in, that the Lord does not take joy in. Love would also not take joy in that. This means love does not take pleasure when it sees other people engage in sin. It could be immorality, violence, crude humor. And it's telling that most of the comedies that come out in movies today, they all center around sexual immorality. Love would not desire to see things the Lord is opposed to. Any form of evil. Modern crime shows on the television, explicit sexuality, as seen in TV, magazines, internet, literature. Love would not seek that out. Love would not long for that. Love would not rejoice in it or take pleasure in it. And this principle applies in view of the sins of our friends and our foes, unbelievers and believers. We would not take joy in seeing somebody in sin if we loved them. No matter where the sin exists, love will always be grieved by sin. Always be grieved by sin rather than take pleasure in it. And this is exactly why David was angered at the death of Abner, even though Abner was once his enemy. Abner tried to take his kingdom from him. And when David found out that Joab had murdered Abner, Joab, again, was David's like right-hand man, his, his leading general. Joab murdered Abner, and David was furious for this very reason. We read of this in 1 Samuel, 
or Second Samuel, sorry. Second uh, Samuel chapter three, verse thirty-one. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, "Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner." And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today. Though anointed king, these men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Again, this was his enemy. I mean, imagine if somebody was out to kill you and they ended up getting knocked off. Is this how you would respond? This was probably a great relief to David in many ways. But he, he knew it came about through murder. And this grieved him tremendously. Rather than finding joy in evil, love rejoices in the truth. And this is contrasted with those who rejoice in unrighteousness mentioned in the previous phrase. See, one of the reasons love rejoices in the truth is that sin primarily works through lies. In order for us to find sin attractive, it has to cloak itself with a lie. Because it has to sneak past the guard of our reason, it puts on a cloak to disguise itself. Think about it. No person, if they really understood what sin was and what sin would actually do, what its consequences would be, what destruction it would lead to, no sin, if they really saw where it was going, saw it clearly, nobody would partake in it. They would, they, would, they would be revolted at it. So sin has to lie, has to deceive. Jesus describes Satan as the father of lies. And so knowing this, we should all the more be diligent to know and treasure truth. We should rejoice in the truth. And pursue it diligently. And that's, that's whether you find truth straight out of the scripture or just through empirical observation and what you see in the world. Any truth should bring you great joy. Because it's going to prevent you from getting deceived by sin. Therefore, an act can never be loving if it compromises truth. An act can never be loving if it compromises truth. And true Christian joy can never be rooted in a falsehood. The one temptation that we're frequently faced with is the temptation to compromise truth. We want want to 
tone down the truth to not hurt another person's feelings. But if you lie to a person in order to not hurt their feelings, it's not motivated by love, but selfishness. See, no matter how loving it might feel, it's just sin cloaking itself in a lie. It's not loving. Hurting feelings is not the worst sin in the world, despite our American mentality. Hurting feelings is not the worst sin in the world. Lying to a person is far worse. And this is especially important for those whom God has gifted to teach to take into consideration. Watering down truth no matter how controversial the passage might be, is a characteristic of a false teacher, not a genuine teacher. The temptation to water down truth because it might offend somebody, it might provoke confusion, it might provoke ire or frustration, to water it down is not what a genuine teacher of the truth would do, but rather what a false teacher would do. And that's why Paul exhorts Timothy In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And will turn their ears from truth and will turn aside to myths. So love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rather what it rejoices in is the truth. Even if it's hard to hear. It also bears all things. Now this is the first of the final five statements that Paul makes regarding what love does. These all statements. Love bears all things, he says. The Greek word bear is the word stego. It actually means roof, like the roof that you put on a house. It carries this idea of providing shelter for people who are in the house. The storms and the torrents, the hail and the rain and the snow would pelt the roof, yet the people inside would be kept safe and secure. The roof is more concerned with how well it shelters the people rather than how well it is appreciated. It is only concerned with how well it serves its purpose, not with how attractive it might look. Likewise, love willingly endures all sorts of slanders, setbacks, offenses that come against it. It endures the harsh realities of the world and faithfully serves the Lord no matter what the cost. And Like a typical roof, over time, a roof may begin to look shabby, may begin to look worn down. But in the end, it will be appreciated for its steadfast endurance rather than what it looks like outwardly. Now, consider this. A house is worthless if it can't keep out the rain, no matter how pretty it might appear. And likewise, love cares about being faithful more than gaining applause. In the end, what it cares about is not how many people noticed me, 
But did I do my job? Was I faithful? Richard Vermbrand, the author of Tortured for Christ, uh, wrote this in his autobiography regarding the brainwashing he had to endure or bear as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. We had to sit 17 hours a day, he says, for weeks, months, and years, hearing, communism is good, communism is good, communism is good, Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid, give up, give up, give up. Several Christians have asked me how we could resist brainwashing. There is only one method of resistance to brainwashing. It is heart washing. If the heart is cleansed by the love of Jesus Christ, and if the heart loves him, one can resist all tortures. What would a loving bride not do for a loving bridegroom? What would a loving mother not do for her child? God will not judge us, sorry, God will judge us, not according to how much we endured, but how much we could love. The Christians who suffered for their faith in prisons could love. I am a witness. They could love God and men. Then he gives this illustration. When one Christian was sentenced to death, he was allowed to see his wife before being executed. And his last words to his wife were, Dear, you must know that I die loving those who kill me. They do not know what they do. And my last request of you is that you love them too. Don't have bitterness in your heart because they've killed your beloved one. We will meet in heaven. These words impressed the officer of the secret police who attended the discussion between the two. He later told me the story in prison where he had been sent for becoming a Christian. Love is able to bear all things because it's able to believe all things. Love believes all things. Of course, this doesn't mean that love is gullible or it's naive, it's easily deceived. That's not what it's saying. It doesn't mean it's going to believe everything that it hears. Instead, what the belief is focused on, of course, is the promises of God. Love has a firm confidence in the promises of God. It has a fortified faith in every assurance that the word of God offers. It believes all that the word says. And believing all the promise of God is what allows somebody to love. That's the fuel for their love. Once we begin to doubt in the faithfulness of God, all ability to love other people will cease. Because God is the fountainhead. And if we cut off the water of his love to us, we will have no water of our own with which to share with others. So if we're dry in our love for others, it's because probably we're dry in our faith. We have little understanding of God's love for us, or at least we've forgotten it. So small love is the result of small faith. And our love for others is really a direct reflection of our faith in God. Consider what John said in 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love for one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And if anyone does not love, he does not know God, because God 
is love. So a lack of love is the result of a lack of faith. Likewise, the key to loving others is to hold fast to the promises of God's word. Such promises as we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Just consider how that promise can compel you to love. When you know God is working everything out for good because he's called you according to his own purposes, you are free to love others. Consider the love resulting from faith in the words of Joseph to his brothers. He writes to them or speaks to them. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. His understanding that God was working everything for good, that even what they meant for evil, God was working for good, is what freed him to love them even after what they had done to him. And you see his kindness. Don't fear. He's not, just caring, he's not just caring about how they're doing physically. He cares about their heart. Don't fear. I will care for your kids as well as you. His faith led to love. Consider also how the author of Hebrews notes that it was the faith of Moses that led him to sacrificially love God's people. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for a greater reward. His faith in God's promise, in God's promised reward, is what freed him to endure with the people in Egypt. He gave up being a prince of Egypt to be mistreated with the people of God because of his faith. So love believes all things, which fuels its hope in all things. Now recognize faith and hope are similar. Very similar. The difference is faith is a present experience of God's confidence and hope is confidence that God will in the future bring his promises about. So they're similar but different. Faith is confidence in God's present, God's promises for your present circumstances. Hope is is confidence in God's promises for the future. And so it believes all things. Love also hopes all things. The word hope is elpizo in Greek. And the word means not a longing or a wishfulness, but rather a firm confidence. A firm confidence that one day things will be better. So it's not a willy-nilly hope, like the hope that I had when I wanted as a fifth grader, to have a Smurf guitar for my birthday. I hoped for a Smurf guitar, but I had no idea if I was going to get one or not. It's not that kind of hope. This is firm confidence. This will come about. That's this kind of hope. Very similar to faith. So when Paul says here that love hopes all things, he means it has firm confidence that all the promises made in Scripture will come to pass. Not one word of God's scriptures will fail. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all of it is accomplished. Firm confidence. All will come to pass. It will all come to pass. The same word hope is what Paul used in chapter 15, verse 19 in 1 Corinthians, when he says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men most be pitied. That hope that Paul had that Jesus Christ rose from the dead was not just some vain wish. It gave him confidence to endure horrible suffering. He says that if the promises contained around the resurrection were not true, he should have the pity of the whole world based upon how he was living. Again, consider what Paul was willing to endure because of his hope in the Lord. He writes in 2 Corinthians 11, I am often in danger of death. Five times I received 39 lashes. Five times. 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. In dangers in rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. What kept Paul going? It was his hope. It was his hope that God would bring about all that he'd promised. Love hopes all things. As the author of Hebrews wrote, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This confident hope, it's an anchor to our soul that allows us to endure amidst the temptations of life. And moreover, the hope that we have in Christ is not, again, merely an intellectual belief. I believe that promise to be true. It's not just that. It's a hope that expresses itself in joy. Going back to what love rejoices in. We have a hope that rejoices. As Paul wrote to the Romans, through him, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we have a hope that rejoices. So it's not just that it gives us strength to endure, but it fuels our heart to rejoice in the midst of these things. And I love John Piper's explanation and illustration of what it means to rejoice in hope. I just ripped this right out of one of his sermons. In fact, my favorite sermon that he ever preached because I found it so helpful to me. This is what he says. It's a, it's a sermon on Romans 5. It says, you've all seen shadows of what it means. You've all had foretastes of it. For example, back near the, at the end of the Vietnam War, many of us remember a certain video clips that nobody but the most unemotional could watch without tears. And he narrates, it had been three years, four years, six years since certain American prisoners of war had been captured. 
And wives have been faithful. Children had grown up. And then the news comes. Your husband is alive. Come to San Diego on such and such a day and you'll meet him. He says those scenes of reunion on the aircraft carrier were just overwhelming with emotion. I'm just thinking of the, I've seen those scenes. And it's true as they come to mind. But think of the emotional experience between the time the phone call came to say he is alive and the actual meeting on the ship. Think of the time that elapsed. The wife receives the phone call. He's alive. Come to San Diego at such and such a dock. And the time when she arrives and holds him for the first time in six years. Nothing had changed except one thing. News. News. He's alive. He's coming home. You will see him. You will hold him. You will sleep beside him. And that news, that gospel, created assured hope. Hope changes everything. Nothing remains the same if you really hope for what you really love. News produces hope, and that hope changes everything. And that's why we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Love hopes all things. Love also endures all things. This is the word hupamino, and it's a military term, actually. It described an army holding a vital position at all costs. So no matter how great the onslaught and how outnumbered they were, the army was to hold their position at all costs to the last soldier's final breath. Just like the brave soldiers who died defending the Alamo. Love will endure all things, no matter how hopeless the circumstances. It was endurance, this sort of endurance, that defined the life of Marie Durant, one of my heroes. In 1730, Marie Durant, a 15-year-old Huguenot girl, was arrested and taken from her home in Boucher de Prince. Her crime was that she had a brother who was a Protestant minister. And knowing that the governmental authorities were trying to capture him, her brother Peter went into hiding. Unable to lay hands on him, the French police arrested his father and later his sister instead in order to lure him out of hiding. He was eventually captured and then he was executed. But his family was never released. Although Marie was just 15 years old, she became a spiritual leader to the prisoners of the Tower of Constance where she lived. She nursed the ailing, wrote letters for those who could not write, and she read psalms every evening to the prisoners. And on top of this, the conditions in this tower were horrific. It was actually after making a general inspection of the tower, the governor of that region ordered the captives to be immediately released when he personally observed the appalling conditions of the prison. 
Here's an account of what he witnessed when he arrived. He says, we found at the entrance to the tower an assiduous doorkeeper. He led us up by dark and torturous stairways and at length opened for us with great noise a frightful door over which one almost read the inscription of Dante. All hope abandon you who enter here. I have no colors with which to paint the horror of a spectacle to which our eyes were so little used. A picture hideous and at the same time touching. A picture of which the interest was only increased by disgust. We saw a great circular apartment, destitute of air and of daylight. And in that great room, 40 women languishing in misery, infection and tears. The governor could scarcely contain his emotion. And for the first time, without doubt, those unfortunate women perceived compassion on a human face. I see them still at our sudden entrance, like an apparition, all falling at his feet, deluging them with their tears, striving to find words, but able only to express themselves in sobs. Then, when emboldened by our sympathy, recounting their common griefs. Now understand, all Marie needed to do to be released from this prison was simply to say, I recant. In fact, they had, a, they had a Catholic priest waiting outside the door 24-7, waiting to hear her confession. All she needed to say was, I recant. And after 38 years of imprisonment, 38 years, Marie was released by the governor along with the other prisoners. She's 53 years old. Instead of recanting, the word which was inscribed on her prison wall was registe, which in French means resist. Love endures all things. This is the example given to us by the prophets, by great Christians of the past, and by Christ himself. And likewise, this is the love that all Christians are commanded to have for one another. The more the church loves, the more it will be effective in promoting the interests of Christ. Remember Paul's statement at the very beginning of this chapter, when he says, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me Nothing. If we don't love like this, we're of no profit, no value. Love is the foundational element in ministry. And this is why the second greatest commandment was not to give all your possessions or to sacrifice your life. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what matters. This kind of love. And I would like to conclude with the words of Richard Vermbrand again from his book, Tortured for Christ. He writes in that book, If a poor man is a great lover of music, he gives his last dollar to listen to a concert. He is then without money, but he does not feel frustrated. He has heard beautiful things. I don't feel frustrated to have lost many years in prison. I have seen beautiful things. I myself have been among the weak and insignificant ones in prison. 
but have had the privilege to be in jail with great saints, heroes of the faith who equaled the Christians of the first centuries. They went gladly to die for Christ. The spiritual beauty of such saints and heroes of the faith can never be described. Before entering prison, I loved Christ very much. Now, after seeing the bride of Christ, his spiritual body in prison, I would say that I love the underground church almost as I love Christ himself. I have seen her beauty, her spirit of sacrifice. So please recognize that 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, is not merely a description of what love is. This is a description of what God, what God has called you to become. This is what God wants you to become. It's what he's saved us to become. In the words of Vermbrand, this is the picture of the beautiful soul. Jesus Christ did not save you simply so that you would escape from the wrath of God, but so that you would have such love, such a beautiful soul. A Christ-like soul. So let us pursue such love with all our hearts to become such souls and to become such a church. Let's pray. We would love like this, Christ. But we also recognize that we do struggle. We struggle with sin and the flesh and every form of temptation. But I pray that you would help us to overcome. That by the power that you possess, the same power that raised Christ from the dead would manifest itself within us. That we would love one another with such Christ-like love. So we ask that you would show your power and help us to live out such love in our families, in our church, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces. To Christ be the glory forever and ever. Amen.